Welcome to Rereads. To Rereads. Written in 1944, in the midst of a world conflict between good and evil, C.S. Lewis's novel, Paralandra, imagines a world before the fall of human beings. It is a story about a new creation, the wonder and innocence of the first man and woman, another Eden where the soul of a new humanity lies in the balance. It is a story of knowledge and wisdom and their subtle differences. It is a story of conflict, confrontation, and the goodness of God made known through his steadfast love for all creation, be it our world or another. Paralandra is the second of three books that comprise Lewis's space trilogy. In the first book, the main character, an academic named Ransom, visits Mars, also known as Malacandra. It is from the inhabitants and perspective of Mars that Ransom learns that his own world of Earth is considered to be, quote, the silent planet, a world that has been under the control of a spiritual power referred to simply as the Bent One. And therefore, the people of Earth are inhibited from knowing and fully experiencing the goodness and love of the Creator. While the main character of Ransom is present in all three books, it is the second book that I found to be most intriguing. In this second story, Ransom is sent to Paralandra, also known as Venus, for some undisclosed purpose. Upon his arrival to the planet, he is overwhelmed by its fresh beauty. Still wondering why God has sent him, Ransom encounters a green, naked woman who lives in the innocence and purity of each day in a newly created world. She is curious about the pale, scrawny man that stands before her, who himself is quite self-conscious about his own nakedness. In my earlier readings of Paralandra, I thought that the novel was a story about temptation. As a retelling of the Garden of Eden story, the first woman is tempted to go against the one prohibition that the Creator has set before her. There is the figure of a cunning tempter, and the setting is a wondrous paradise. What is unique about Lewis's tale is that the tempter is a man who comes from Earth, the humanist scientist named Weston, who seeks to cajole the woman to disobey her creator and explore her as yet unrealized humanity. Ransom comes to understand why he has been sent to Paralandra to confront the lies and malevolent purposes of Weston. After my recent reread of the novel, I still agree with my earlier summary that this is a story of temptation, yet upon further reflection and another 25 years of life, I believe that Paralandra is more about discernment, the listening and distinguishing of voices. Which is the voice of God and which is the voice of one's own wants, fears, and desires? And what is the voice of an evil agency that seeks to distract and deceive? Closely related to discernment is the theme of obedience, a word that includes the idea of listening and responding accordingly. The green woman personifies the posture of listening, an attentiveness to the world. 
She pays attention to the voices of wind, water, and animals. She is aware of the movement of the creation and the voice of the creator within her own being. She senses the feelings of longing for the man from whom she is separated, her partner in this new paradise, the one she simply refers to as the king. While at first Ransom is taken by the innocence of the green lady, his initial conversations reveal the vulnerabilities that exist in Paralandra's Eden and its first woman. Lewis presents Ransom's observations as follows. It was suddenly borne in upon him that her purity and peace were not, as they had seemed, things settled and inevitable. There was no reason why she should not step out of her own happiness into the psychology of our own race. But neither was there any wall between to prevent her doing so. The precariousness terrified him. Ransom realizes his words introduced an outside knowledge to the woman. She, in turn, tries to create new categories in her mind for these ideas. Concepts like death, disappointment, and, and longing expand the boundaries of her thinking. At one point, she exclaims, You make me grow older more quickly than I can bear. This is the precariousness that Ransom observes. Yet the woman has her limit for too many words and dismisses Ransom with a simple declaration, We have talked enough now. In her mind, Ransom may go and take all of his words with him. In a subsequent conversation, the green lady declares through her laughter, Oh, how often the people of your race speak. You had nothing to say about it, and yet you made the nothing up into words. The woman both listens to the voice of the creator and the many words of ransom. Yet she is able to distinguish the two voices and listen to ransom in light of the creator's words to her. Ransom means her no harm, but one is coming, who through his ill intent seeks to crowd out the words of the creator. The character of Weston is introduced in the previous novel, Out of the Silent Planet. He is a renowned scientist as well as a humanist, and he is driven by a desire to see humanity's full potential realized in the dominance of not just Earth, but of all worlds. Ransom knows this man to be intelligent, arrogant, and ruthless. Upon encountering Weston on one of the shores of Paralandra, Ransom asks Weston if he is there to spread his humanistic influence. Weston, for his part, says that he has evolved. No longer does he hold to the construct of human potential and the greatness in the physical world. Weston has come to see that there is a spiritual force in, at work in the universe and at work in human beings, in particular in himself. He is the one to channel this world spirit as he seeks to become a divinized man. Unfortunately for Weston, what happens is that he becomes swallowed up and used by the spirit he believes to be guiding him. Weston describes his newfound, quote, spirituality as follows. Man in himself is nothing. The forward movement of life, the growing spirituality, is everything. To spread spirituality, not to spread the human race, is henceforth my mission. Spirit, 
mind, freedom, spontaneity. That's what I'm talking about. The gore, Ransom, the gore. Think of it. Pure spirit. The final vortex of self-making, self-originating activity. Weston's version of spirituality is not the same as the Christian faith that Ransom holds on to. The spirit at work in Weston is goading him into a self-centeredness and aggrandizement, an independent force not beholding to anyone or anything. Ransom grows concerned about the spirit at work in Weston and says as much. Well, look here, said Ransom. One wants to be careful about that sort of thing. There are spirits and spirits, you know. I mean, a thing might be a spirit and not good for you. The devil is a spirit. It becomes apparent to Ransom and the reader that the voice Weston is listening to is malevolent in nature. Weston's hunger to possess wisdom and insight from this voice has allowed the spirit to reside and work through the scientist. Challenged by Ransom, the depth of this influential spirit is made known. Now, your mentioning the devil is very interesting, said Weston. Your devil and your god are both portraits of the same force. Idiot, said Weston. His voice was almost a howl as he had risen to his feet. Idiot, he repeated. Can you understand nothing? Will you always try to press everything back into that miserable framework of your old jargon about self and self-sacrifice? I am the conductor of this central forward pressure of the universe. I am it. Do you see, you timid, scruple-mongering fool? I am the universe. I, Weston, am your god and your devil. I call that force into me completely. What follows is horrific. The spiritual force within Weston seizes his body and throws him into a convulsive seizure, finally leaving him rigid and unresponsive. Night approaches. Ransom is unsure of what to do. The green lady is gone. The darkness of the perilandrin night enfolds Ransom, and he sleeps. When he awakes, Weston, too, is gone. For years, I've held to the idea that the heart of temptation as represented to us in Genesis 3, is to doubt the goodness of God. That is, to consider and perhaps act upon the idea that somehow God is withholding his goodness from us. Simply, we are being shortchanged, so we better reach out and take what should be ours. Again, consider the word picture that Genesis 3 represents. It is an idea that entertains the notion that God does not have our good in mind. In my rereading of Paralandra, I see another aspect of temptation at work. It is the appeal to independence. After Ransom's first disturbing encounter with Weston, and his realization that another force is at work in and through Weston, Ransom finds the Green Lady. To his horror, Ransom discovers that Weston has also found the lady and is deep into conversation with her as he tries to ply her with subtle suggestions to act independently of the Creator. Ransom hears their conversation. I'm wondering, said the woman's voice, 
whether all the people of your world have the habit of talking about the same thing more than once. I have already said that we are forbidden to dwell on the fixed land. Why do you not either talk of something else or stop talking? As I mentioned earlier, the idea of listening, discernment, seems to be much of what the story of Paralandra is about, especially as I've come to reflect upon it in these last weeks. Through the constant barrage of words, Weston seeks to confuse and distract the woman's attention. That is, her listening to the creator and creation, and instead draw her focus and attention upon his constant suggestions. Words. So many words. The woman's existence in the paradise of Paralandra is invaded by words. What Weston seeks to implant in the woman is a twisted notion of desire. That desire can also include wanting something, anything really, for yourself, independent of the Creator's desire. The spirit within Weston goes even further to suggest that the Creator desires for the woman to act independently that by going against the Creator's prohibition is actually an act of obedience to the Creator's desire for its creation to become independent. Part of Weston's strategy is to tell story after story to the Green Lady, stories of women from Earth who have asserted their independence. Weston relates these tales as examples of power and beauty and creative force, they are stories of brave women who have become, quote, fully human. So many words. Hour after hour, day after day, Weston makes his case. Ransom begs the lady to withdraw from the words and presence of Weston, to retreat and to listen to the silence and rhythms of creation. Her reply frightens Ransom, for he sees the effect of the unrelenting words of Weston. Shall I go and rest and play, she asked, while all this lies on our hands? Not until I'm certain that there is no great deed to be done by me for the king and for the children of our children. It was on these lines that the enemy now worked almost exclusively. Though the lady had no word for duty, he had made it appear to her that in light of duty she should continue to fondle the idea of disobedience and convinced her that it would be a cowardice if she repulsed him. The ideas of the great deed, the great risk, of a kind of martyrdom, were presented to her every day, varied in a thousand forms. The idea of becoming a, a risk-taker, a tragic pioneer, the veiled egoism in the conception of the noble revolt must be increased. Words. Discernment. To whom do we listen? What is of interest to me in this reread is the voice of creation. As the persona behind Weston distracts and overwhelms the lady with so many words, so many imagined possibilities to assert her will, she seems to grow less attentive to the reality of the created world around her. Weston, for his part, visits violence upon the creation, ripping apart birds and frogs and plants just out of sheer malice for the creator's world. 
At one point, he kills several birds just so he can assemble a, a type of feathery garment for the lady, an adornment to her beauty at the cost of another beautiful thing. It makes me think about how we listen and to what we listen. As I write down these thoughts for this season's last episode of Rereads, I'm sitting in a cabin in the eastern side of the Cascades, surrounded by high-peaked mountains with the rushing Icicle River roaring below. The evening stars are breathtaking in their numbers and brightness. There is much to listen to here, and it reminds me of the words of the psalmist. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So let us consider the idea of temptation. What if we thought of temptation as that which distracts and overwhelms our listening ear, the ear of our heart and soul? Not just in the loud concophony of angry voices, but in the constant subtle whisperings and suggestions that this, whatever this may be, is what should demand our focus. Paying less attention to the silent voice of creation and instead entertain ourselves with imaginings of an alternate creation where we nurse a counterfeit reality in which our ego and imaginings reign as Lord and Master? What if temptation is that which lures us into a false center where our opinions, wants, and desires form the core of our own being? Let us consider obedience. Obedience is less about submitting our will and crying uncle to the demands of God. Rather, it is an intentional posture by which we willingly seek the good purposes of God to inform, guide, and, and yes, challenge our thoughts and decisions. Disobedience, it follows, is the stopping up of our ears, the closing shut of our eyes, and the tightening of our fists upon the thing or things that we are convinced is our right to possess, be it an action, an attitude, a physical thing, or experience. Thomas Merton writes in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander the following, Man's separation from God by the willful assertion of his individuality is ultimate, and by the determination to live as if, in fact, it were ultimate. In the end, this false view tends to assert, at least implicitly, the complete autonomy of the individual, who is no longer responsible to anyone, who is able to choose for himself any one of an unlimited number and quality of possibilities, and who is, in fact, free to do exactly as he pleases without rendering an account to anyone and without taking into consideration the moral and physical consequences of his acts. It gives me pause. What great evil and destruction human beings are capable of inflicting upon themselves and one another. Yet the same capacity and power that asserts our will and ego upon the world can be used to challenge our very selves. I find it interesting that the conflict of Paralandra is between two humans from Earth. 
when the confrontation between Weston and Ransom moves from verbal altercations and develops into a physical conflict, something strange happens to the world around them. The green lady is cast into a deep slumber. The birds are silent. It is as if the creator gives its creation a lengthy rest as the two combatants meet. Paralandra and its occupants are in the good and capable hands of the creator. Ransom comes to see that the battle is his to engage. It is here that my reread has left me with some questions. I wonder, perhaps the story of Paralandra is not only a retelling of the Garden of Eden, but it is a story of humanity's struggle with itself, the contention with our own nature and the precariousness of our own choices. Like Weston and Ransom, we face off with ourselves, arguing over our conflicting desires. Further, what if our choices and their unintended consequences could have an effect upon an entire planet, a community, or a family system? Where our choices can make the world a, a better place or add to its misery. Thomas Merton said, Evil and falsity are unavoidable, but one does not bow down to them passively and without response. Resignation is not enough. God demands of us a creative consent in our deepest and most hidden self. This creative consent is the obedience of my whole being to the will of God, here and now. The identity of my own obedience and will with the obedience and will of Christ. Such is the depth of our sonship and the life of grace. The identity of my own obedience and will with the obedience and will of Christ. The Apostle Paul describes this as having the mind of Christ, the laying down, the literal self-emptying of our power, prestige, and position. This posture is one by which I relinquish my need to control and assert my will upon the world, be it my localized context or the world at large. As I was sketching out this episode of Rereads, I was struck by how well Merton's idea of creative consent described the heart of the story that is found in Paralandra. And so, leaving me with these self-reflective questions, to whom will I listen? Whose words will frame my thoughts and desires? The mob, the media, my own selfish desires? Are there too many words in my life distracting me from the still, silent voice of my Creator? The creative silence that pours forth speech and declares knowledge day after day, night after night. Do I listen? for the first word spoken out of the silence in the beginning? Do I allow that word, the word who is Christ, to shape my mind, my will, and my actions? These are pesky questions that can disrupt our sometimes outright campaign and, more often, our subtle agenda to become the center of the universe Lewis paints a beautiful picture in Paralandra, where creative consent is not the obliteration of the will, but the fulfilled purpose of the human will in concert with the creator and creation. 
Perhaps this is the invitation that the psalmist presents. To be still and to know that he is God. This has been Rereads, and my name is Kent Place. Rereads will return later in the fall for season two. Until then, be well, and remember, you can never step into the same book twice.